What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Hey 3CR listeners, you're tuning in to Done By Law on 3CR on 855 AM. It's 6 p.m. on the 15th of March and I'm your host, Indy. I'll be rocking it solo tonight and I'm really looking forward to uh, the topic that we will be discussing. Before I start, though, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional and rightful custodians of the land that we're broadcasting from. I want to pay my respects to elders and acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So tonight we'll be talking about the misidentification of the primary aggressor and don't worry, we will explain what that means. This is a huge issue for family violence workers and lawyers and as a community lawyer in this sector, I see a lot of misidentification happening in the system In December last year, the Family Violence Reform Implementation Monitor released a report talking about misidentification and the issues in the system. And it's fair to say that the relevant bodies, being the police, the courts and child protection, are failing to properly identify, recognise and respond to misidentification And the consequences of it is is that it's re-traumatising for victim survivors, it criminalises women and so on. But before I talk too much about it, let me introduce you to our guests. Linda Memory is the Manager of Policy and Campaigns at Women's Legal Service. Women's Legal Service is a community legal service that provides advocacy and legal advice to people who identify as women. And Estelle Petrie, She is the senior lawyer at Police Accountability Projects in their Changing the Story Policing Family Violence Project, um, which focuses on policing issues and family violence. So thank you both for being here today and speaking to me about this important issue. Thanks for having us, Indy. Thanks, Indy. Great to be here. Linda, I'd like to start with you. Can you speak to our listeners about what is misidentification of the primary aggressor and and how does it happen? Yeah, sure. I'll give a a bit of an an introduction and explanation. So misidentification is, put simply, it's not simple, but put simply as I can, it's when a victim survivor of family violence is identified or named as the perpetrator. So it can happen in a range of ways, but the most commonly known or cited is when police attend a family violence call out and they make a poorly informed assessment and wrongfully name the victim survivor as the respondent when making an application for an intervention order. It can also happen elsewhere in the family violence response system, for instance, a court, including where a perpetrator applies directly to the court 
for an intervention order or a perpetrator of family violence who is accurately named as the respondent then makes a cross application and sometimes is encouraged to do so. Um, and frankly, there are other parts of family violence response where assessments are being made where this can occur. So for instance, in child protection, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later. So one thing that I'd say about Miss ID is that at women's, we describe it as a, at least in part, it's a form of systems abuse. So that's when a perpetrator of family violence can use legal process, the justice system to cause further harm. So using the state essentially as a way to do what family violence does, and that's to assert power and control to abuse women, abuse victim survivors. Okay, so, you know, who does it affect? I mean, overwhelmingly it's women, given that misidentification is usually the result of a poorly formed assessment. So assessments are being made essentially on the basis of, of incidents alone and not taking into account the dynamic and patterns of behaviour over time. So it's a superficial assessment, which effectively isn't a family violence assessment at all. Rather, it's, it's looking at specific actions or information that's provided to police. So in the absence of a really solid understanding of the dynamics of family violence, that's a critical point here, assessments can be made on the basis of, for instance, who's presenting as more rational, more calm. So you have to think about what power differentials are being leveraged there. Perpetrators can be very charming, very convincing. So if the unconscious biases that we know exist within the system and for practitioners within it, if they can be leveraged, they will be. Perpetrators will appeal to any of that kind of underlying racism, ableism, heteronormative attitudes. Um, so let's say, you know, they arrive, a woman is shouting, maybe in a language other than English, he appears really calm um, and he's, you know, presenting as very rational. Um, he might even have a physical mark from her resisting his violence, but he doesn't present that to police. You know, he presents this kind of really, look at what's going on here. So it's, it's not uncommon for victim survivors to present as erratic, um, particularly when police or help arrive. So, you know, that's the kind of context within which MIS-ID happens. You can see how if it's a superficial assessment that's based only on what they see and what they're being told by the perpetrator, a victim survivor can be named as the respondent. So it's about the core assessment of what's actually going on. Estelle, going to you now, can you talk to me a little bit about the work that you do in this space at Police Accountability Project? And then, Linda, I'd love to also hear about some of the work that Women's is doing um, on misidentification. Yeah, thanks, Indy. So I work in the um, Family Violence um, and Policing Project, which we call Changing the Story. There's a couple of lawyers in that team um, and we also it's co-led by Flat Out Inc um, which are a, a housing support um, organisation that work with criminalised women and women who are in the criminal um, justice system and um, my work I focus actually on civil litigation um, so suing the state of Victoria for police misconduct in this area um, and also do a bit of family violence work with our other family violence um, lawyer and the type of work we do is really trying to intervene um, in a lot of these misidentification cases they're a dime a dozen it happens all the time um, so we're, we particularly because we're a small project try and focus on the most egregious of those um, 
and it's advocating for those women um, as their representative court. It's also advocating with police. So um, we like to do what we call chain of command advocacy, trying to um, unpick the police narrative that's been embedded from that, um, as Linda pointed out, like wrongful or um, misguided assessment at the start. I'd also say it's not just acting um, where there's an intervention order and someone's been... um, wrongfully listed as the respondent it's because misidentification can call, can also be um in this in the realm of criminal charges so police will turn up at an incident and make an assessment on the intervention order but also charge the victim survivor with particular offenses um, which may relate to that that defensive use of violence or the the violent resistance uh so it's, yeah that's a little bit of what we do Okay, so yeah, um, uh, women's, look, I guess broadly, we're very heavily involved in family violence system reform in quite a kind of broad way, um, first and foremost in the justice system. Um, but, but yeah, more broadly, knowing that integration is key and that we can't or shouldn't distinguish our work in silos. So we've got a kind of system-wide view in, um, yeah, what's going what is going on and what needs to happen to improve responses to family violence so we started at at women's working on misidentification around 1997 with a case file review where we of where we'd assisted women at Melbourne Magistrates Court who'd been named as the respondent in a police application for an intervention order we found that between 10-12% of those applications the victim survivor had been misidentified so really, in many ways, was kind of kicked off where we're at now for many organisations, including the amazing work that's happening at the Police Accountability Project. So we've been working on it since, including advocacy to Victoria Police in regard to practice improvements. And that's a really important starting point, but it's certainly not the entirety of the problem of where MISID happens and what needs to happen to, to prevent it and to fix it. But even in regard to FitPol, we recognise that even if police members are quote-unquote, perfectly trained, mistakes are going to happen. So there needs to be things in place at Victoria Police to rectify those those mistakes at court, at the station level, before the application reaches court, and in the information systems too. So a lot of kind of, you know, really finding out where the problems are and, and putting solutions in place with Victoria Police. But also an intervention order application triggers a broader response system into action. So if, for instance, um, so if a victim survivor is wrongfully named, she may be referred to perpetrator services rather than provided the safety and support that she needs. And that, of course, can be dangerous and difficult to undo once that response pathway is triggered. So we're also concerned with how that happens and what else needs to be corrected. So an example might be if it results in child protection intervention. So what happens there? Are, are, if it's Even if it's found, to found um, are records co- corrected? Are child protection decisions that were made based on that incorrect assessment, are they reviewed? So we really need to look at this issue of wrongful identification of a family violence victim survivor as reflecting what needs to happen, needs to be improved right across the response system broadly because it's not just a frontline Victoria Police problem. Yeah, and there's so many flow-on impacts for women who are misidentified, which we'll get to in a moment. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, 
but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. I'd love to get your view on this. The report that was released in December tells us that misidentification occurs due to, you know, uh, inadequate processes and inadequate knowledge of family violence. But we hear from Linda that work's been, we've been working on this since um, 1997 in terms of the collective of people and community wanting better outcomes for victims, survivors of family violence. Apart from this idea of inadequate processes, um, there are more, there are other insidious factors that also impact why people are misidentified. Um, Can you tell me more about who is actually being misidentified in these scenarios? Where do they come from? Um, What are their backgrounds? Uh, What we're really seeing from some of the data around this and maybe that are people that are interacting with PAP project? Thank you. I'm so glad you asked this question and made reference to the insidious factors. Um, so firstly, starting with who we see it affecting. This, this comes through in, in some of the statistics from the um, review, um, sorry, Reform Implementation Monitors Report um, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are disproportionately affected by um, or experience misidentification. Um, And that, you know, it rings true or it's it's not surprising given that those people are also um, over-policed just generally within the community. They have a lot of police contact um, because of attitudes, um, you know, I I would say from the police um, accountability project perspective because of racist policing approaches. Um, it's also um, women who've already been criminalised are often um, people who experience misidentification because all of that sort of that comes up on a police record um, and in police computer systems when they're responding to incidents. So um, that's in police's mind as they're dealing with this person who's experienced violence in front of them um, and potentially clouding the way that they assess the situation. Um, it disproportionately affects women who've got a disability and also women who are experiencing mental health um, issues or crises. Um, again, speak go, sort of going towards the way that police are perceiving the behaviour of victim survivors who are um, experiencing violence. Um, and it also affects, and this comes through again in the, the report, the LGBTQIA plus community um, quite significantly, again, because police are just not adept at um making those calls um, and conducting a thorough assessment in um, relationships that um, aren't heterosexual. Yeah, and in terms of those, uh, just to jump on the insidious factors thing, I think it's absolutely right that there's so much training already and there are so many guidelines and there there's a call on police to make an assessment as to who is the primary aggressor or, you know, on the flip, who's most in need of protection. But... Um, time and again, or despite that, we still see this misidentification occurring in huge numbers. And by some reports, it's increasing. So I think we need to look beyond whether it's a training issue um, and whether it, it actually is a, 
more related to police culture. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about that more in a moment. I think that's a really good point, something that I'm finding personally in my work. Linda, what are the flow-on impact impacts of being mis-ID'd? You, you raised it sort of before, talking about, say, child protection involvement. Can you talk a little bit about it doesn't just stop with police saying, hey, you're the perpetrator. It goes on, and, and what does that mean? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Great question. So, you know, the impacts can be really serious and long-lasting. It's way more than a piece of paper. So I guess the first thing and the most probably the most important point is the impact on safety. So if police, courts, family violence response system isn't meeting a victim's survivor's safety needs, in this instance because she's been misidentified, she's at risk. Um, she doesn't have the protection and help she needs. It also takes a lot to reach out for help. It can feel really scary and uncertain. And so she does it. It backfires because the authorities have gotten it wrong. Do you think she's more or less likely to call for help again? So, you know, that's a really important point. But let's look at what happens to a victim survivor in a really practical way. I could, I guess, say that this is a bit of a kind of caricature version, but it's, it's really not. Um, let's say there's a safety notice issued by police at the scene. She's named as a respondent. Application or an intervention order gets made against her. She's excluded. Let's say she's excluded from from the home. The kids remain with the perpetrator. She has to go stay with a friend. She no longer has her kids with her. So she loses her parenting parenting payments all because of everything she's dealing with. Takes a few days off work. Loses her job. So she can't get the cash together to get a new home. Without a home, she can't get her kids back in her care and so she can't get on her feet financially and so on and so forth. You can see the kind of trajectory that it sends things in. So then let's say there's family court proceedings that get underway. She's not had the kids in her care. She's struggling to find a home. Her financial situation is precarious. There's a history of her on record as being a perpetrator of family violence. So you can begin to see how MIS-ID can trigger a series of life events that can be profoundly impactful on a victim survivor. A couple of other quick examples. So let's say... um, and there's a report to child protection. She's named as the perpetrator. It's not uncommon for that assessment to be essentially accepted, taken at face value. So she's sent to complete behaviour change program. Um, she's only allowed to have supervised uh, visits with her kids. Oftentimes it can be a member of the perpetrator's family who's doing the supervision. She's got a hell of a long road ahead of her. And that's all because of that incorrect assessment in the first instance. It's also really important to think about the psychological impact of misidentification. It's a common tactic of perpetrators to, that, they, that they use to convince a victim survivor that she's making it up, that he's actually the real victim. That sinks in over time. It messes with her thinking. She's questioning her own judgment, questioning her ability to assess what's real and what's not. So you have all of the institutions of the state telling her that the violence perpetrated against her is actually her fault. And all of the institutions of the state telling the perpetrator that his behaviours are understandable, are acceptable, and his belief that he's, a real, that he's the real victim is validated by the state. It reinforces the very dynamic that underlies family violence. And it's the, this dynamic that's a known precursor and predictor of escalating violence, including domestic homicide. It's that serious. Yeah, and if the matter goes before the magistrate, for example, and the magistrate smells that something's a bit funny, so says, oh, we'll just uh, put a safe 
contact order in place. So for our listeners, that's like an intervention order but allows people to still communicate and live together, then that victim survivor goes home and the perpetrator can use every action that she takes um, and a threat that they can call police and get her arrested for every moment. So it becomes that tool to continue to push that family violence. Um, yeah, it's it's shocking. Um, Estelle, I'd like to talk a little bit about police now and their involvement. Look, the report says that a big part of the fact that misidentification is potentially increasing, um, in my lay view it is, uh, is has to do with the inconsistency to be able to identify who the primary aggressor is and just the lack of information or knowledge around what family violence is and what co- coercive control is um, and how it intersects with a range of cohorts that might be involved in this system. Can you talk about the failures uh, by police from a PAT perspective and what you see as some of the issues are? Yeah, I, I, reading through the report, I think it was great to see the way that the, the monitor was ready to, to put police in focus. Um, and there were there were some important statements in it, I think, about police getting it wrong when they attend to events. And and I, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good articulation of, of what happens and also took into account lived experience voices in the report. So I, I think that's great. But it still tended to lean on the side of more training, more guidance, more contact points. So there was um, some reform suggestions to say, well, you know, if practitioners or other workers can get in contact with police and there's a defined contact point, then that could be a way to rectify it. But though I, I feel that those... Um, mechanisms and the training and the guidelines are there it's a um, boots on the ground and it's an everyday police problem um, in terms of the attitudes that they're bringing to um, events or incidents that they attend to Um, so we've already said like people of colour and um, uh, migrant communities as well as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women are are already over policed and subject to um, police prejudices when they're when they are interacting so that goes a long way to influencing um, how police will um, list the the perpetrator and the sorry the respondent and the affected family member on an intervention order Um, I think also like I'm not sure about you and your experience, Indy, but even interacting with police, you know, you, you um, when you're advocating for a client, you contact the informant, you say, let's just get this sorted out, you know, excuse me, did you know there was this whole history going on? Also, you should have this in your LEAP records. Um, we often see clients where it's very clear that there are there's significant family violence, there's several orders that are protecting her, and yet on the basis of this single incident that they've come out to, the whole story is flipped or rather they've ignored um, that history. Um, but you contact police and you try and explain um, the history and, and, and step them through the coercive control and all of this um, material that, they, that is within their guidelines and they just dig in. Um, and you really have to start, I think, calling into question whether it's a, a cultural um, attitudes problem more than a um, resources and training problem. I am clicking my fingers. You might not be able to hear that over the radio waves. I thought, So the cultural issues and these police uh, prejudices, like not only if we talk about racism but the structural sexism and the idea that yeah. potentially 
what we would consider coercive control just doesn't exist. Yeah, and I think also people aren't the perfect victim um, and in the way that they're interacting with police um, as a victim survivor, and that seems just incredibly difficult for police to um, get their head around, that someone who's experienced long-term violence potentially um, is heightened um, and a little bit difficult to engage with at least at that first instance, um, and then it colours the whole interaction and the assessment. Just got to say, Estelle, I'm clicking my fingers too, and I think that any any kind of orientation that's just about training and having administrative systems going to fix this problem in and of itself is is, is really naive. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. It does need to be system wide and really kind of holding everyone to account. To the, you know, it, it's not going to happen overnight, but that needs to be the starting point and the goal. Yeah, and can I also add, not to labour it too far, but I've also had experiences where, like, informants will say, oh, yeah, look, even one where the police had cross-applied against themselves, so it sort of was like, make a decision. Um, And they're like, well, just let the court decide. The court will figure it out. But, you know, with COVID, we're seeing huge blowouts at the time that interims are in place until you hit that first court date. And even then, the magistrate might not have been in a position or be, you know, have the disposition to um, make a decision on the day. So they'll order or they'll request that police provide further risk assessments and look into this. And it just drags the whole experience out whilst a victim survivor is potentially at risk of breaching an order um, she shouldn't be the respondent to. I think there's a real risk of um, decisions being made on the basis of expediency over rigour, 100%, and especially, you know, in the, well, I was going to say post-COVID, we're not post-COVID yet, are we? But, yeah, absolutely. Very much agree. Um, Look, one more question uh, before we go. Uh, Linda, what what are the advocates' demands in this space? What do we want to see? Yeah, okay. So I think, look, I think that the the Family Violence Reform Implementation Monitors report is very good, Um, certainly a lot broader in its scope than was ever anticipated initially and provides some really good opportunity to put pressure on key points in the family violence response system um, to get a whole lot better. So, um, you know, at Women's, we particularly appreciated that the Reform Implementation Monitor proposes actions that need to be system-wide to address those underlying causes of MIS-ID. They also point out key areas for immediate action, like Victoria Police, obviously, and not just about training police members, but the systems, processes, all of that stuff that sits behind it, um, that hold police to account for um, reflecting best practice um, in their assessment and responses to the complex dynamics of of family violence, um, including the interaction between protection orders and and criminal charges where a victim may have used offensive or reactive force, record keeping, clear and widely known to everyone, processes to get those assessments reviewed and fix mistakes when or if when they happen because mistakes will happen. It also put kind of courts, legal services in scope as well. So um, needing processes for urgent action to, um, sorry, urgent return to court where MISID has been found, recognising that, you know, time is of the essence. Um, integrating legal services in the family violence response model because, frankly, we're kind of on the edge, which I think is kind of peripheral to the system um, when absolutely needs to be integrated. Also, like the child protection system, improving practice so that 
imbalance of addressing protective concerns, their most immediate um, obligations, that that's done through a family violence lens, which holds perpetrators to account and doesn't cause further harm to the victim survivor mother and victim survivor children. So that's kind of broadly the areas of spoke for us in terms of where we, we need to see um, some significant improvement, improvements. Linda, Estelle, thank you so much for joining me on Done By Law. It was a really great discussion. I loved speaking to you both um, and thank you. Thanks, Hoops, indeed. That was really good conversation. And Estelle, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. You've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR on 855 AM. If you love listening to Done By Law and Community Radio, you can continue to support us by subscribing to 3CR or donating online, in person or by phone and mentioning Done By Law when you do. This helps us continue to discuss important social justice issues with you on Tuesday evenings.